0: This is Outside the Vines, a podcast that fuses three big names from the world of sports, their love of wine, and their thirst for sports. For the video version of this podcast, check out our YouTube channel. There you get to enjoy the visual side of our podcast with next-level infographics, and you get to witness the reactions from our guests and hosts while they taste the wines. All right, let's get to it. Here are your hosts for Outside the Vines, Ted Robinson, Glenn Parker, and Ashley Adamson.
1: All right, well, we are back. And I just want to say, gentlemen, uh, before we start, Ted is joining us from his hotel room in Paris at 1 a.m. local time. Is that right, Ted? 1 a.m. Okay, your commitment is commendable. uh, (laughs) Certainly better than mine. Ted
2: Robinson, of course. But
1: I was going to say, I knew there was no way you were going to miss a chance to drink wine with Don McLean. So it's no, no surprise.
2: No, I mean, come on, Ash. You and I, we, we're we going to have to really swing our weight here because you're dealing with Captain Cab here, Don McLean, and our own Parker. My God, we've got two experts in our own Pac-12 family here. So
1: I'm just glad I have a full bottle of wine to drink and sit back and listen yeah. to the three of you for the next hour because that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, Don, I, one thing before I, I let Ted take it over and we actually start talking a little bit of wine. I think a lot of people, they know you obviously as the guy who scored more points than anyone in the history of Pac-12, but I'm guessing a lot of people may not know how much of a wine guy you are. I didn't know until I randomly got invited to a pandemic, you know, virtual happy hour last summer <laughs> and Don's holding court talking about cabs like he's some grandmaster Psalm and I just, I was kind of blown away. So I, I just, I want to ask you one thing before well, we start, Don, have you, have you forgiven our producer, Adam Gordon, for not asking you to be a host on this podcast? <laughs>
3: <laughs> not quite, not okay. quite yet.
1: You're still working through that.
3: I must tell the listeners off the bat and you people that know me know I have some weird quirky stuff that literally I only drink taps and some blend. So let's establish that first that I'm just a one trick pony, um, but I do love wine. I probably don't know as much about wine as you guys on this show, but I do like to drink it and I do and have been for a while. So I've gotten to know it. Um, but yeah, let's. I guess what I'm saying, Ash, is let's not get too broad spectrum on in the wine thing because I only know one. I only know one type.
4: Yeah. I, can I just interject here? I don't think any of us know all that much, Don. We just like it a lot, like you. And let's face it if you if you like what you're drinking, you're winning at this game.
2: That's right. That's best
1: um, right. part about wine. Yeah. So, Don, who put the
2: who put a glass in your hand for the first time and said, "You have to try this."
1: So.
3: I had had a little wine throughout the years, but when I when I was almost done playing, I got to know a friend. I live in Westlake Village out here in California, and I got to know a guy that owns a couple restaurants on the lake in Westlake. And so we were old golfing buddies. We played golf all the time. And so the more time I started spending with him, the more wine I started drinking. And the nice part about being friends with him is you get all your wine from the wholesalers at their cost. And so throughout the years, um, you know, whether it's uh, a certain winery's blowing out their vintage and they're deep discounting it, but just the regular pricing of it is I've got my hands on a lot of great wines for a lot less than retail. And so that's where it started. And it's basically continued for the last, I don't know, 20 years, 18 years, something like that. And and so he's been a great friend and, and, and he's the one that kind of introduced me to the really good stuff you know i didn't know what was good wine and what wasn't but when i started tasting the good stuff you know when it's the good stuff
4: yeah can, can i ask you what do you remember what that first bottle was you had that you went whoa this is so much different than what i've been having
3: do you remember that no all? that's a good blessing Glenn. I, I i don't know exactly which bottle it was but i just remember you know, it's in that group of high-end cabs, the Camus's, the Silver Oaks, the, those types that you just were like, wow. And I love to eat steaks, too. And so that's what really, really started it was, you know, eating red meat with steak. And that's what everyone's done for years and years. And I just love that concept. And I love the taste. And so what better way to start drinking wine than order a steak or make a steak here, which I do quite often.
2: What was the reaction to your
3: first Chardonnay? Well, what's that? (laughs) My Actually, my wife is a big white wine drinker. So Ah. she gets into her white wine. I'm the red. She's the white. But I'll be honest. I haven't drank hardly any white wine. When I say that I only drink the cabs and blends, like literally, that's all I drink. (laughs) Uh, Ted, you know me, man. I got some weird stuff going. I can talk hoops. I can talk wine.
2: That's it. (laughs) Hey, You're only one type of wine. All right. So, so let, let's do something here because we're going to get back to the wines because we're, we're all, since we're in different locations, as Ash said, we're, we're drinking different wines, but you just finished a heck of a basketball game and the team that you covered during the regular season, the Clippers, the pro team, just, I mean, what a was, first of all, I, has it ever happened? I, I didn't get privy to the records out here's any playoff series like that had six straight road wins. No. First time it's no. happened. Unbelievable.
3: Yeah. It was a great series. In fact, you know, Dallas, I think Utah's is a better matchup for the Clippers than Dallas was this Doncic kid. Doncic kid is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And he was a tough cover. They struggled covering him the entire series, but Kawhi kind of stepped up in game six and they did enough yesterday, making threes to, to move on. But it ain't going to be easy winning an NBA championship this year. That's for sure.
1: So who do you think is going to win it, Don?
3: I mean, I like the Clippers now coming out of the West. I think the road now with the Lakers out of the way, that that was the one team that everybody wanted to avoid just because you thought that they were going to get healthier. Turns out they got less healthy and lost in the first round. But I think the Clippers are the favorite now in the West. And, you know, Brooklyn, we'll see how long Harden's out, but, I, I like the team coming out of the West, whether it's the Clippers or somebody else, to to win it this year.
4: So if you're if you're you're saying that, let's just go to this next series. What are the key takeaways? What are the things that a person like myself loves basketball, but I don't follow it closely? What are the takeaways for me watching watching the Clippers and the Jets?
3: Well, the, the number one line item on the scouting report for Utah is what are you doing with Rudy Gobert and the high ball screen and him rolling to the rim? There's a lot of different ways you can play that, but you have to get it under control or they will dominate you. Because if you start sucking in coverage on Gobert at the rim, they got plenty of shooters on the perimeter. So it's a tricky balance. And I'll be fascinated to see what Ty Lu and his staff comes up with. Um, but Mitchell's good. Conley's good. Like They have a really good roster and they play well together. Quinn Snyder's is wildly underrated as an NBA coach to me. And so it's going to be a really good series. I just think when you have the best player, this this thought is, has been around for years and years. If you have the best player on the floor, you have the best chance to win. The Clippers have the best player on the floor Leonard. So I think that gives them the best chance to win.
2: What's your view on Anthony Davis? I'm reading an awful lot about the, the collapse there at the end. Well, I just
3: did a radio show before I came on here and that was the conversation. You have to decide at some point when you put all your eggs into a couple players, which is what you have to do now in the NBA to compete for a championship. Mm -hmm. What happens if one of those stars is injury prone, what do you do? Because he's the main reason they're out of the playoffs is that he wasn't healthy. And so do you keep going with him and just hope and pray that he doesn't continue to get hurt That's a tough one because you don't trade players like Anthony Davis unless you know that he's going to continue to get hurt. And in my experience and everyone's experience with the league, if you start out your NBA career by getting hurt a lot, you're probably always going to get hurt a lot. And I don't know if that's the same in football, Glenn, but that thought has been around for a long time, that if you're kind of injury prone, you're always going to be injury prone.
4: You know, I think there's that thought a little bit in football, but the difference being what we talked about, pre-show in that the grind of that basketball season with 82 games, you can, if you're injured a little bit and try to play, you can really hurt yourself farther down the road. Whereas in football, you have a week off between games. You can recover. um, You can take the time necessary if you're hurt through a season to get ready for the next year. So I don't know that it's, it's, it's quite apples to apples, but I think that grind in the NBA probably makes it more so if you're, if you're going to be an injured player coming in, you're probably going to stay injured throughout your career.
1: We've always said the basketball guys are way tougher than football guys. That's we've known that for a while, Glenn. So you're not telling Don that, anything. It, it
4: goes exactly against what I just said, but that's okay.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and Donnie, we just said, I just looking up your stats before, because we know about your scoring. You played 127 games at UCLA, 127 games in your career and you're all time leading scorer in the conference. The Warriors, those champ five straight years are playing a hundred to hundred and five games a year, right? With their, all the playoffs in one year. I mean, it's well, mind blowing.
3: To take it one step further with Davis is the word on the street is he doesn't do a lot in the offseason to help himself uh, in that regard, like diet, nutri, you know, nutrition, rest, recovery, working on his body, and that may be why he's continued to be injury prone. I wonder if now that it's happened again, does he start? getting serious about his offseason because you can't eliminate all injuries by having great off seasons, but what you can do is eliminate some of the nicks and dings that you get pulled hammies, groins, those kinds of things. You know, you can't guard against coming down on someone's foot and rolling your ankle. But if you spend a lot of time and money on your body in the off season and during the season, it's kind of been proven that you will stay healthier. So I wonder if now it's gotten to that point. Well, he, where he will start doing that.
2: Hopefully for the Lakers, he will. Yeah. Hey, the other one news that really jumped out at me and it actually has a tie, uh, a little bit of a tie to to the pack is the Boston move where Brad Stevens leaves the bench to go to the front office. I mean, 10 years ago, this was the hottest coach in college basketball. Oregon kept the job open. Basically, I I don't know if it was quite a blank check, but they pretty much were going to give him anything he wanted. And he chose to stay at Butler for one more year. I mean, he's not even 50 years old yet, to leave the bench. What was your read on that?
3: Uh, It was a head-scratcher just because he's proven to be such a good coach. But you know what, Ted? You don't know what's going on in that locker room. The game's changing. There's so much more player empowerment now in terms of roster construction, guys leaving, guys demanding trades. And so it's really hard to manage locker rooms now, even in our game, in the college game now. I mean, I I used to – spend this time of year tracking okay this guys leaving this guys come. I don't even look at it anymore until October cuz it doesn't make any sense like makes your head hurt got a handle on it and then we get to the preseason yeah. you are know, like wait a second where did these four guys come from and so it's a little bit like that in the NBA where there's just no there's no continuity or not as much continuity that makes it harder to coach makes it harder to manage personalities to manage the locker room and so you wonder if he just got burnt out and that he didn't want to go back to college, maybe for the same reason that he's looking at the transfer portal and going, how the heck am I ever going to get a team to get consistently good? Like I did at Butler when I got players leaving, cause they only played 12 minutes a game the season before. And so maybe the Don, solution is to make the same money he's making. I'll just jump up into the front office and make decisions and not worry about it.
1: Don, so here's the one it, thing that I would. Oh, go ahead. Glenn. I was just going to say the one one thing I was going to add on Brad Stevens is that I was was in Indianapolis working in local news. I covered Butler's two runs to the NCAA championship when he was there. And I remember he came out and had a press conference after he decided not to take the Oregon job. And he said, this is kind of awkward. I've never been asked to have a press conference and had to tell everyone that I'm just keeping my job. But, you know, you don't mess with happy. And the thing that I would say about Brad Stevens, and I put him up there almost with no other coach that I've ever met he was so in tune with life outside of what his job was. I mean, I remember when they lost to Duke, I think it was 2010. I asked him, like, how'd you, you know, how'd you, what'd you do after that? And he said, I went and played with my kids at the playground at a local indie park. Like he just, Mm -hmm. he is so tuned in on his family. I think he loves and knows the game of basketball so well, but he was done with all the BS in college and what he felt like was a lot, you know, dealing with, and this was before the transfer portal got going um, with recruiting and, you know, some of the cheating that was going on. He was just sort of, done with all of that so it wasn't surprising to me that he didn't necessarily come back to college I think if there was a job that that opened up one day that would make sense for him to I don't think he'd close it off but I just I when you bring up Brad Stevens when I saw that I was surprised and then also when I really thought about it I thought no I mean I'm sure there's a family element to it there's there's got to be some very specific and good reasons why Brad would, would go that route
3: that's probably it Ash's family's probably firmly entrenched in Boston he didn't want to pick him up and move him and, you know, for a college job that maybe doesn't work out, maybe it does, but that's probably it, that he didn't want to move again. And I'll tell you, and I think I've told you this, Ted, that's why I didn't get into coaching. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to keep moving. You know, I, I, I love where I live. I've lived here since I retired and I don't want to move. And so that's why, that's literally the reason why I never got into coaching is I didn't want to have to move all over the place.
4: Don, the reason I, I when I was going to ask you about a little bit there, as you said, how much it's it's changed that dynamic and how that can drive a person like, like Steven's out of that locker room. Does it bother you as an older player, the way players seem to play? It's more prevalent, I think in basketball now, but it's becoming prevalent in the NFL as well. That players seem to play for the name on the back of their jersey rather than the guys next to them. And that, and that team, does that bother you? It bothers
3: me, Glenn, but what I think I've gotten good at over the years is understanding that times change. You know, I hate the guys that go on the air and say, well, when I played, it was okay. Yeah, it was that way when I played, but it's a different time. And so you have to adapt. Do I like it? No. But in the society that we live in of social media, instant gratification, my own brand, everything's about me now as a professional athlete. So it isn't like the olden days. It's a shame but I also understand what it's about now and how players have been given the opportunity and allowed to do what I was talking about earlier to walk into the front office and say, I don't want to play here anymore. Trade me. And guess what? They trade them. Whereas when you and I played Glenn, the GM would have been like, F you dude, get out of my office. Right.
4: Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah. that's you know, just I, Or waiting to an opportunity to cut you when they didn't have to pay you. <laughs>
3: right. And so it's just different. <laughs> you know, is it right? Or is it, well, it's not right or wrong. It's just different. And for guys that played in the era that we played in, when it was more about your brothers in the locker room, your teammates, the franchise, the city, it's it's kind of a long way from there now.
1: Well, Don, you kind of have the best of all worlds. Well, for us, certainly, that you're a broadcaster and we get to work with you at, at Pac-12 Network. The other side is that you still do get to coach and, and kind of do scratch that itch. And again, maybe something that... <laughs> Not everybody knows, but you you work out with a lot of NBA draft prospects, help them get ready for their draft. So can you kind of walk us through that part of your world? and I'm just like curious how you find time to drink wine with the like five jobs that you have?
3: Before I go to bed, whenever that <laughs> is. Um, so I've been doing this for seventeen years now, and I used to do it for another agency. Now I work for CAA. and basically, whoever they sign to be to represent, they're their agent, they come out here. I work with a guy by the name of Ryan Capretti. You may know that name, Glenn. He was in the NFL for a while. He, he, he owns a sports performance uh, company and building that we train at. So we partner together. And so whoever CA gets his players, they come to us. And we get them ready for Chicago Combine. We get them ready for individual team workouts. All players will go see teams. You know, the higher draft picks will only go to see three or four teams in their draft range. But then we have guys that will see 12 to 15 teams um, because they're slotted a little bit lower down. And so this year we have six players. It can be, we've had four, we've had 13, we had 13 three years ago. So it changes every year, but we're basically getting them ready to be a pro basketball player by starting to talk about nutrition, uh, you know, the sports performance side of it, mobility, agility, weightlifting, all that stuff that maybe they've done a little bit of but then the on-court stuff that I do is about understanding you know, more NBA stuff, terminology, how much more physical it is, stuff that you're going to need so that when they go to these team workouts, they can help themselves and hopefully move up in the draft um, or just keep where they're at. But it's, it's my – and I love everything that I do. It's my favorite thing that I do. I, I couldn't do it for 12 months. It's pretty intense. We get after these guys every day. It's six days a week. This year, because of the calendar and then moving the NBA draft back to late July, it's usually late June. We had an extra three and a half weeks. So we've been going since April 19th. And here we are on June 7th. We still got another month, which is fine, um, but it gets long. And these guys all move out here for the whole time. But we've had a tremendous amount of success with the program that we've designed and that we implement for guys to move up in the draft, which we've had a lot of success with that, but the summer league starts nine days after the draft and they got to be ready for that. And so it's, it's about getting drafted higher, but it's also about getting ready for summer league. And um, yeah, so we're, we're right in the middle of it right now, but we actually this year have the best group. It's going to turn out to be the best group we've ever had. All six guys are going to be first round picks and we usually don't have that. Usually we get two, three first rounders, maybe a lottery or two, then we have a couple second rounders, but this year, the group that we have is, is I would be shocked if they're not all picked in the first round. I'm
2: thirsty. Yeah. I'm hey, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, Ash, lead us around the horn here. What? Well, I'm I was just going to say, Ted. Out? I,
1: I want to dive into our wine in a second that that Glenn and Don and I are drinking, but because you are the reason that this is the Bordeaux Bonanza episode, as I mentioned in in the open, is that mm. you're in Paris. Though <laughs> so I know that you had um, plenty of wonderful French wines and Bordeaux to pick from. What what are you drinking?
2: Well, uh, and I, uh, those who know a little bit know I've. Been here, I think 20, this is the 27th or 28th time to Paris. So I've had plenty of opportunity to go. And as you learn in Paris, you can go to the little markets, the supermarchés, supermarkets, and you can buy 10 to 15 euro bottles of Bordeaux that are outstanding. That's what, it's a staple of life here, is what they drink as the dinner wine every night. And then, of course, you can get the experience of having the super megas. So tonight, in honor of Captain Cab coming, my restaurant that I had dinner at eight consecutive nights. This is Margot 2014, my Chateau Margot. Uh, and so I had a little bit of it at dinner and have a little bit left here at 1.20 in the morning. But for those who don't know, Margot is the third growth of the Chateau Margot uh, vineyard, Chateau Margot being obviously one Pavillon Rouge two. And I just looked it up. Uh, they told me 2014 was a great year. They weren't kidding because. Uh, Margot themselves say they only used 60% of the growth that year, of their harvest rather, went to Chateau Margot and Pavillon Rouge. So for the third run here at Margot, they had 40% of their harvest, which is really, really good. Um, and it's 49, how about this, Don, 49% cab, 49% Merlot, which is another thing you find out about the board. How would at least give you know, me to try
3: it? I don't know. I don't know if I drink the whole bottle, but I was going to say you're more of a man than me to have any
2: wine left in the bottle at 120 a.m. Man. Uh, well, I, again, I, we knew we were having you on. But I mean, this is really uh, and, and and I, and I'll, I'll, I won't i will go too deep on this, but I'll tell you because I went to Chateau Margaux and I think I told Glenn this. This was five years or five years ago, give or take a year. And we went down to after my trip here for tennis, we went down to Chateau Margaux. And it's extraordinary because you can't just drive in. This is not an app in Sonoma County. You don't just get driving up to the tasting room. They don't have tasting rooms. You get an invitation, you go, and they give you a a very gracious tour. Uh, And I found out they have, Chateau Margaux hires on staff, full-time, a Cooper. They have their own Cooper, which is astonishing. His job is to make barrels. And I have a video on my phone of about three minutes long. of watching him shaving some wood and trying to bend some metal. But he makes 50 barrels a year. That's his job really? for Chateau Margaux. And I, I, I was just utterly blown away. But it's the devotion that they put into to their wine is that they pay whatever the salary is. And he basically does a barrel a week. <laughs> does that make sense, Glenn? It does.
4: Yeah. You know, they first color with a classified growth like that. There, it's more than just the wine. They also have their own standards that they always are that they're always putting forward. And anything not of that standard, you know, they, they have not been classified. There's only been one that was added since 1855. So they don't reclassify. So you can the worst thing you do it's akin to losing a Michelin star if you're if you're one of the first growths and you could somehow and somehow you. Did wrong with by your barrels by your, by your processes enough times became consistent that you lost your standing. That's the shame they would face. So it makes complete sense that uh, they would keep face by hiring their own cooper right on right on grounds to craft barrels for them to move on. Because remember, they
2: their growth went into the third growth, and that's not the barrels they're using. Right, and I, I was. So to to wrap a little bit on the Bordeaux thing, uh, uh, we're going to try to get him on on one of these episodes coming up. Uh, A good friend of mine is Rob Davis, who just stepped down after 45 years. I believe he was the winemaker for Jordan and uh, Jordan Cab. Uh, Rob was trained by a famous French uh, Andre and I'm blanking on his last name. Famous French. You probably know the name Glenn. But uh, anyway, he was trained by him. So two weekends ago, I was seeing him up in uh, in Heelsburg, and I, he turned me on to something I didn't realize. You know, in the '60s, Bordeaux Don produced sixty percent white wine, really only forty percent red wine in the 1960s. That was the way wine was doing it, and they only bottled apparently the very best of each vintage. They drank, they drank it, but didn't bottle a lot. And 1970 was Basically, a a, a a turning point. And then the oil crisis that those of us of age can remember, the oil crisis in the uh, mid, early 70s, really, really accelerated it. So by, by 1975 now, the Bordeaux vineyards are all bottling their own stuff. That was when it changed. And now today, so now to finish this, today in Bordeaux, it's 87% red. <laughs>
3: That's Don's heaven. Can I I tell you a quick Jordan Cab story to to, to just keep uh, illuminating my weirdness? So my favorite meal in the country is at Prime Steakhouse in the Bellagio in Vegas. Okay, Mm -hmm. I order the exact same thing every time I go. And every time it's a bottle of Jordan Cab with that meal.
2: Every time going I have to have you connect with Rob because we're going to get Rob to do one of these episodes with yeah. us because he's a great, great storyteller about about the wine business. But that I mean, I, I don't know how you all think about that, but when I heard that that in the 60s, I mean, I none of us think of Bordeaux with white wine. Sixty percent white. Glenn, did you have any idea? Well, I, I like sauternes and I do like
4: uh, I, and I like the Sauvignon Blanc and some of the Sauvignon Gris. Uh, they, they do nice blends, but no, I mean, they're, they've become so well known because the Bordeaux blend of red that you'd be you hard to contemplate that much white was being produced compared to red.
1: Yeah. All right. So, Ted, I got to say, I mean, we're not we're not quite drinking what you're drinking tonight and you're in Paris. And that's probably why uh, next year, by the way, I think we're all coming to the French Open and we're going to do outside the vines in your hotel room in France, I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, can we talk about what we're drinking tonight? Because I'm, really I'm, to to be I'm really curious to hear what both. I'm really curious to hear both Don and Glenn think about this one. So as I mentioned before, this is a creative impulse. It's a Bordeaux. Let's see. Can you see it? Bordeaux uh, blend from the state of Washington, 2015 Rasa. Creative Impulse is the name. It's been around for nine years, guys, and it's never received anything lower than a 92 point rating. This particular one had a 94 point rating. So, Don, I'm going to start with you since you're our special guest and and less critical than Glenn Parker sometimes. (laughs) What what do you make of the wine? Because I I think it's fantastic. (laughs)
3: <laughs> I, I like the I like the 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 hard driving alcohol-y, flat wines, the big ones. And if you can tell me that a non cab can can get there like a blend, then I like it. And that this 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 tastes like something that I would drink normally. And I wouldn't order that because I don't really order Bordeaux blends. But if if I didn't know what was on the bottle. I would think that it would be something that I would normally order.
1: See, by the way, this is why I love Don. Like that—that's the type of wine descriptions that I could get behind. Hard-driving, alcoholic. Like that's—I <laughs> <laughs> I speak your language, Don.
4: The- and, and Don, though, you know, there, that's, so. This is where you just said this is not really something in order because you probably have. It sounds. I know exactly the type of wines you're talking about. But in California, one of the things that has really become come to prominence is the Bordeaux blends that have more of that because they are they're more popular in the the high end bars and restaurants. So they are producing a lot more of those. They're, They're still Bordeaux blends because they just all those grapes give a little different characteristic. They're not all the same grape and right. I love this. This is a good wine for me, but to me, I, I would like to see a little more Cabernet Franc to give it a better nose. Uh, just a little bit, a little bit in there, maybe a little bit deeper dough for the same reason, but that's only because of my taste. Um, but then I'm also a guy, have you ever, if, since you're a cab guy, I would, I would love for you to open a bottle of Cahors. Those are Malbecs from the extreme region on the river through through uh, Bordeaux, uh, the Dordogne. and it they're, they're, they were, in the medieval times everyone knows the black wines of Cahors. they were they're dark, super inky uh same with the other one in that same region is Maderan and if you can get those, most of your wine stores will have them. they'll blow you away they'll be right. darker and inkier and heavier than than any cab you've ever had. So I, I, please give them a shot. There's so many good wines for you to try that'll meet that profile you're talking about that just aren't caps. Text
3: me or email me that. Will you, I'll give you my number or something. Delta? Yeah, when
4: we're all sitting, down, we'll
3: communicate. Yeah.
1: And we should point out, I, I have not mentioned that the one that we're drinking that, that Glenn and, and Don and I are drinking is 72% cab, 28% Merlot. So Glenn, I want to just dive, dive us a little deeper into when, when you uh, took your first sip and your reaction to it, like what, what is it that you notice about this particular Bordeaux blend?
4: There's, there's a dark fruit right on it. There's there, the dark fruit hits you. Um, and then there's. It's, it's not quite lead pencil like you would see in a traditional Bordeaux, but it's kind of edging on it. And then you kind of slide into your a little more of your tobaccos and your leather. So it, it, I think dark fruit is right up front. That's what you it hits you. And certainly if you take a, a sip that you can breathe out on upon swallowing, you can really, it comes through. It's a very round wine. It's not particularly a tannic monster, but it's got some good tannins for backbone. So I think it's going to last a while. But it's not one of those things you go, holy cow! I can't drink this for ten years or fifteen years. We're sitting at six years right now. It's very drinkable at this point.
2: Lead pencil? That's not a uh, that's not a phrase I've thought of, Glenn, about Bordeaux.
4: I think if you if you give yourself a chance, you don't know, like pencil shavings. That lead pencil, <laughs> you will find that often. It's it, next time you're having a, a Bordeaux or whatnot, or um, give your, just give it that light whiff, and you'll you'll pick yeah. that. up.
1: Okay. Yeah. I
3: definitely take, I'm with you, Glenn. The dark fruit really jumps out at you right off the bat. And, you know, again, the, 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 the back end of it is good too. I, you know, sometimes when you get that heavy fruit, it's like, "Mm," you know, the the back end's not great, but this one's good. I like this.
4: Yeah. It finishes nicely. It's got a little bit, it's got some tannin in there. You And I think you've got another five to seven years to enjoy this before it probably starts going south on you.
2: All right. So, Don, what's the heaviest big swing cab in your world?
3: Well, I think we have a list we're going to go through at some point. Um, Can
1: we do that now? I think we should do that now.
3: I will tell you this, though, and not to make anyone jealous, but my 50th birthday party, my wife wanted to have a party for me, like a party party. And I'm, you guys know me. I'm Mr. Party. <laughs> no. Um, and so she ended up at my friend's restaurant who I was telling you about earlier we had just a dinner for about 75 people and the menu was Wagyu New York's and Camus all night mm. the only wine served was Camus, so that bill was pretty expensive but <laughs> worth it
2: everybody appreciated the Camus all night yeah I've heard the stories. Yeah. Um, all right. So we we have renowned, those of us, those of you who have watched Don with us on Pac-12 games know that we love the, the, the collaboration of Don with Adam Gordon to get really creative <laughs> and they love these little concoctions. So we have, I understand Mac on the rack, which is a
3: derivative of Mac on the pack. All right. All right. It's typically Mac on the pack. For those of you that watch the Pac-12 network, it's usually four, Things that I'm thinking about for storylines for whatever, and so we're just going to make that Mac on the rack and rank some wines, or at least not rank them, but maybe uh, list them of wines that I have had in my cellar. I think I still have a couple in my cellar, um, and talk about them. So these are these are your five, right? Are
2: these your best five?
3: And I and I'll be honest, and I did it um, off the top of my head. I didn't go down there and I didn't I didn't put a ton of thought into it just because I wanted it to be like what comes to my head first of, of five wines that I like. Cause there's obviously a way we could do a list of a hundred wines, right? Um, but these are the five that kind of popped into my head right off the bat. If you're asking me my five favorites that I've had. Okay. Um and right. want to start Ash, you want me to yeah, just let's start. tell. Let's tell people. Go ahead. So the fifth one I came up with Joseph Phelps Insignia. That was one of the first wines I've had um, that I, when I started what I, what we were talking about earlier with my friend that owns the restaurants, that was one of the first big red wines that I tried and I loved it. And I still get it from time to time, but I've, the one thing I have gotten better at is trying different stuff, even though I'm still really only drinking Cabs. I'm not just locked into certain brands and certain wineries. I do try and try different stuff now, but insignia was was one of my favorites early on and still is i just don't get it as much as i used to uh the fourth one which is one that you like ted was quintessa that again early on it was one of the first ones i had and i loved it um you know i haven't had it i actually haven't had it that's that tells you how much i liked it is i haven't had a bottle of quintessa in a while and it made the (laughs) list
2: Um, so fond memories of that one. Yeah, it's a great call. That one, I I think that doesn't get as much notoriety and attention as the other big swinging cabs that we may talk about, but I I think that's fabulous. Yeah. Very good. Glenn, you can chime in
3: with whatever you want on, on these wines too. You know more about it than I do.
4: Insignia is one of my all time favorites. I think that they have, they've consistently turned out a great wine. I think the first one I had was in 86 and I've had I owned verticals of them all the way up until two thousand two or three before I started. Don, you might not know this, I had a very, very large cellar for a long time, and I ended up selling. I'll just say, I used to say, several thousand bottles really? um, out of my cellar to downsize. So I am now at about six hundred, but I and it was several. It wasn't a couple, it wasn't a few, it was several thousand bottles I had to sell. So I, I had a lot of verticals, and I just uh, you get to a point where you could drink a bottle every day for like the rest of your life, and you are like, okay, that's. I think I have enough wine now, so <laughs> it's time to try some new things. Kept kept the odds and ends and, and sold them off. So insignia. It only almost, took Adam Gordon two years to get
2: over it, Glenn. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and yes, the parties at our house after uh, before football <laughs> games were quite epic uh, with the wine consumption. But um, contest, I love. I I think I have one bottle left to contest, and it's a ninety four sitting out in my. Uh, I think it is. I think it's a ninety four sitting out there. Uh, so far, I love. Them. I like your list. I agree with them. You know, it's again subjective. What what you like, what comes to mind. So. Keep rolling. I can't wait to hear the rest. I just remembered,
3: and I mentioned it earlier about my friend and how, you know, the the wineries would blow out the vintages and they just want to get rid of it. Insignia was one of them. I believe the year was 2004. This is going to blow your mind. They had to get rid of it. And so my friend bought 106 packs of Insignia. Wow. You know how much per bottle, Glenn? Well, I'm (laughs) dying to hear, but I'll get jealous. 2004. $25 25 dollars a bottle cool. and I bought and I thought I was doing good I'm like you know give me five six packs in hindsight I should have bought 56 mm-hmm. packs yeah. 25 <laughs> bucks a bottle Are you kidding me yeah so really all you could have got your hands on yeah seriously I should have um all right next up uh, Silver Oak Napa Valley one of my all-time favorites um, the difference which is interesting between Alexander Valley and Napa Valley to me is pretty apparent. Between the two wines, I know one's way. The Napa is way more expensive than the Alexander Valley, but again, going back to when I first started drinking big, heavy cabs, Silver Oak kind of popped into my mind is one of the is one of the all time greats that I've had.
4: Yeah, it's, it's one of those. It's a standby. It is one of those. Uh, anywhere you go in Napa, any list you're going to find Silver Oak's going to be on it. It's it was kind of the original. I, I don't quote me on this thing you know I'm, I'm probably wrong but it was one of the early on cults that when it was released people had to be there people had to get it so yeah no that one makes sense completely if you and I say I
3: haven't seen one in a long time but if you're rolling around town and you see somebody somebody's car with a license plate frame that says silver oak that means your wine's probably doing pretty good because there was a car <laughs> that around this neighborhood that had a license plate frame that <laughs> Silver Oak, something or other. Dustin um, <laughs> Meyer was living near you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and this was a tough. The top two were tough because came a Special Selection is probably if I if I had to go, you gave me a free pick of a bottle. It's probably the way I'd go. But you know, we'll get to the number one in a second. But came a Special Selection is just one of the all timers for me. Like mm-hmm. I just. I don't know why. I just I love it more than most other wines I've ever had.
4: It's you make a great pick. Where it's grown, the Wagner family, what they've been able to accomplish by being great farmers and stewards of the land, um, not trying to do too much with what they do, letting that that fruit speak for itself every year. Came a special select is it's it is a, a absolutely outstanding wine almost every single vintage. Yeah, I've
3: never fair. had a bad glass of that. And I,
4: and I can't wait to hear last one. I've got it tight. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. It's going to love
2: it.
3: So, so with my friend again, I hate to keep bringing him up, but he's kind of my, you know, my, my guide through the world of wine years ago, I'm going to say 15 years ago, because he sells so much wine at his restaurants. We were able through Southern wine to go stay on the Mandavi property before he sold it. So, there's like seven cottages on the property. Maybe there's more now. Maybe less. But we got to stay in one of them, and this was early on. Well, I, I'd been drinking wine for a few years by then. And Glenn, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I remember: that the Tokalon Vineyard at Mandavi is like a football-sized vineyard right next to the main property. Correct?
4: Yeah, it's it's kind of in the back and just just off to the side of the main property. Yes.
3: And so when I first tasted the Mondavi Reserve Tokalon, it blew. And I'd already had a bunch of really good wines. It just connected with me. Uh, of all the wines I liked at that point, and, oh, I love this, I love that. I'm like, this is the best wine I've ever had. And, again, Glenn, correct me if I'm wrong, they made it for years. Then they stopped making it, the Tokalon Reserve. And now they started making it again like three, four, five years ago or something like that. Does that sound right?
4: That sounds right. I'm not sure the exact years they did that. So, uh, Toklan, it, it, it means like the, the highest good. Um, that's what that meant. And it wasn't, it, it was a vineyard that Robert Mondavi wanted. He really wanted to get into that vineyard because he always loved that, that fruit. And so when they started doing that, um, you're right, they started doing vineyard selection. So they, they originally started with like Oakville Rutherford and I forget the other one. They had three designates that were all incredible, um, all the fruit came from the, that area, nothing else. And then when they poured out Tokelon, it was a game changer when it came to designated cabs. Um, the Robert Mondavi Reserve Tokalon Vineyard is, and I'm so happy you put that at the last. I will upset you. I sold two cases. I still got eleven bottles out there. I drank one, and I said I can't sell these. I have to keep these, <laughs> and they're '97s. And they, I just had the '97. I probably kept, I probably kept 12 or 13 bottles in fact two, because I just had a 97 just like two years ago and it was fresh and young and wasn't going anywhere. And it was a 97, so great pick. Love that pick as a matter of fact, because as you know, I, uh, I interned up there in my off seasons to football. Uh, when I was with the Bills, I stayed on property. I led tours and tastings, love the people up there. They were great to me. And that wine is one that just yeah. resonates with me.
3: I'll tell you how much uh, I think of that wine when unfortunately, when our friend Mike Yam uh, left the Pac-12 network, that's the bottle of wine I sent him. That's how much I think of that wine.
2: Fantastic. That is. Well, Ashley, I wasn't kidding. We are the we're the lightweights here, man. Well, yeah. I was just
1: going to say, yeah. I think if, if nothing else, the last about 10 minutes has confirmed that Adam Gordon made a huge mistake and <laughs> should have had Glenn and Don and maybe Ted as a guest host and me just like I could have helped you on the technical side, maybe, Adam. But I don't even know why I'm a part of this thing. But that, you that was awesome. yourself
4: short, Ashley. No, Stop. I mean, I'm here. I'm here to drink
1: wine and, and listen. Amen. And, and, but that's, so that's what it's all about.
3: about Ashley, you've been picking up your glass very consistently
2: throughout this <laughs> it's show. The one girl.
1: thing that I bring to the podcast, <laughs> Don, you know, you know me well.
2: Oh. Ashley, how are you on the big Ashley, how are you on the big hitting cabs?
4: I, that, well, I will done? say I was
1: looking at Don's list because I actually got a sneak peek at it, but before he unveiled it, and and I have tried everyone and love every single one except I don't think I have had the Mandavi Reserve. So I haven't either. Yeah, at, that's now officially on my list. But Camus has that's been my favorite. That, I, yeah, Camus I was a, waiting.
2: Don and Glenn, where, where does Harlan come down in in your guys' world?
4: I've tasted Harlan. I owned many, as you know, I've owned a lot of cases of it and just basically as an investment and sold it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have tasted, I like it quite a bit. I don't know that to me it's worth the price that you're going to get into. One of the, and this is where I go against a lot of the the wine um, snobs is that I think most cult wines are completely overpriced for yes. what you're going to get. I think some of your bigger, older Napa houses, the Robert Modavis, the Insignias, the Schaeffers, um, the Chateau Montelena's, wow. you know, they, those bigger, older ho- houses oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. produce great wines in quantity at a price point that makes them a very nice special occasion wine. Cult wines make a great wine that, oh my God, I'm going to mortgage my home to get. And I don't think they're worth it. I just, I'll go against the aficionados and the gurus. And I just think you're better off going with a well-known house in a good vintage and you can't be wrong.
3: Totally agree. That's why I said Screaming Eagle. That's the cult wine. Like I, yes. if you've ever had Screaming Eagle, it's like, okay, yeah, this is pretty good, but it ain't worth 5,000 a bottle or whatever they're getting for it. <laughs> yeah.
4: I mean, and, it's worth what people pay and people pay it, but it's not worth it for me. That's,
1: I'm going to ask you guys like kind of a naive question. Like how does, how is it possible that there is wine that is produced that you could spend thousands of dollars on a single bottle? Like I, I, I truly don't understand it. It's
4: all ego, right, Glenn? I, mean, I was going to say it's ego. People have an ego about the wines they hold and what they have, and right. um, you know, and people you say, "Well, let's break out a bottle." Of wine. I'm like, "No, I'm selling this. I'm not. I wasn't even. I wasn't even proud. Of it. I had it in my
2: cellar. I kind of hit it. I just didn't want anybody to know. <laughs> I was like, I get rid of this." Screaming Eagle. Right? There, there was. I'm going to say it was three years ago now. In the Costco near where I live on the peninsula in the Bay Area, had a one bottle. Costco had a bottle of Screaming Eagle. I think it was $2,600. And I've had the chance to have some because I just have had been in the right place at the right time. And you start doing the math and it's about 60 bucks a swig, every, like every taste you take. And you start going, exactly the point. I mean, it's nice wine, but come on.
3: Glenn, you sound like... you. I think you 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 and I are probably alike in the sense that I'm always trying to find the forty dollar bottle that's really, really good versus spending two hundred bottle that's like not as good. Like one that I've been drinking a lot lately, um, that I got from my friend is Pine Ridge. He gets it 32 a bottle and it's great. Like really, really good wine for that for that price.
4: So I used to when I first got when I first moved in Tucson after I retired, I was doing the broadcast world, People knew that I was into wines, and I'd get invited at tastings occasionally, or the you know the the you know the club where the guys have uh, they got to bring out their biggest bottle. Like every like once a month, they get together and they're all trying to out- outdo each other with this great bottle of wine. And they were always blind tasting. And I always told them, I said, "You're never going to like me in your group because I'm going to bring a bottle. I'm going to spend way less than you, and if you're going to love this bottle of wine." I said, "But we can do it." And I, I brought a bottle of a $11 bottle of Murrieta Old Vine Red non-vintage and it blew them all away. <laughs> understanding the flavor profile that, that people want and where they're at. And is it always that good? No, but you're right. That, that To me, the thrill of the chase is what great bottle can I get at the cheapest price? What second label can I get? Like either, one of the... The things that people have to understand in the great vintages, the best vintages, go for the second label. If you don't want to spend a ton, go for the second label. You're going to get great wine because they're they're out of the same year, the same vineyard, the same barrels. The only difference is they didn't fit the flavor profile the yeah. winemaker wanted when they were blending. And he's holding up his third growth there from a great year. That's
2: a great bottle of wine. It's 100, 100 euros and Pavillon Rouge. If you can occasionally see Pavillon Rouge in some good wine stores in the U.S., 150 probably. Yeah, yeah, 150, 175 a bottle for the second growth Chateau Margot that's out. There. And that's an occasion wine. Obviously, it's not every night. And but it's an occasion wine, that's that's a great bottle. Yeah. And what is Chateau Margot again? And there, that's your how much oh, no, wine? I, yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I will I will tell I, the, the the trip to Margot very quickly. So a young young woman who spoke enough English to communicate with us, gave us the tour. So now at the end of the 45 minute tour, we get a little tasting and she brings out, um, and I forget the years, but she brings out a Margot and a Pavillon Rouge, the second row. Now it's 10 30 in the morning. So she pours the Margot into her glass and does the very, you know, very proper swirl and, and then takes a, a good, you know, probably two ounce taste of the Margot and, turns around and right in the spittoon. And I'm sitting there going, that's $150 right there. That's 150 bucks of wine. You just spit out. It's like, uh, anyway.
3: You know what I was just thinking about Glenn, since you know so much about Mandavi, when we went on that trip where I told you we stayed on the property and all that, my wife stumbled in and not a lot of people carry it. It's not, it's not around a lot, but she literally, has been drinking it ever since. And so she's been drinking that Fume Blanc that they make for 20 years.
4: It's 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 Fumé Blanc. it's a phenomenal white wine. It doesn't go through uh, metal lactic fermentation, so it's got a crispness to it. It's it's you know, it's one of the it's a Sauvignon Blanc that just is done very, very well. It was our house white for years in my houses in Buffalo and Kansas City. I love it. You're absolutely right. It's great. Right. And they make some great vineyard designates of that, or they used to. Um, designates or reserve that were over the top good. If you had with oysters or seafood, they were incredible. So yeah, she's got good taste. I don't know what she saw in you. I was just going
1: to say, I mean, she's got one blind spot, <laughs> but that, she's got excellent taste.
3: You know what you saw, ask,
0: but I could like, pay you for the just... Fumé Blanc
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Great point. helps every marriage. Uh, Glenn, I got to ask you, and then I want to ask Ted about some tennis before he has to go catch a flight, I think, here in a few minutes. But how do you, knowing everything you know about wine, having the cellar that you have, like, how do you choose what you're going to drink on any given night?
4: So I have house house wines. I mean, I don't drink nearly as much wine as I used to. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to stay somewhat slim as I get older. Um, But it's, it's, I have house wines. And that's your normal pick. But if we're going to be, and I have a house, white, house, red kind of things, I don't mind just pulling out. And then I've got wines that if we're going to have um, a steak or a great piece of fish, or or I'm going to match that food to the, I'm going to match the wine to the food and pull the bottle out of that that I want. that I want the most that evening. So I, I generally pick it that way, house wine. And then if it's a special meal or once a week meal, I'll pick if we're doing a great steak or if we're doing a wonderful slice of fish or something, then I'll, I'll switch it up and, and I'll pull something out that has a great play, flavor profile for what we're having. And I'm a big fan of Pinot Noirs as, as Ted knows. And, and, and Don, one thing I never did is I, I refuse to get into Burgundies because when you talk cult wines, yep. it, there is nothing in the California cult wine world, the Bordeaux world that even touches the price of Burgundy world. It is it, a, a great Burgundy, like a great Pinot Noir. Is like I, I can only liken it to one thing, and you know I've never been there. Like your first hit of crack, and you're going to be going after that same high. For the next 20 years of your life and all you're going to do is spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to get it and you're never going to get it again it just you've got you've got to hold yourself back i refuse to the try know. For
0: that no. all
3: all the rich idiots i know drink burgundies seriously <laughs> all the rich idiots i know drink burgundies but it's interesting glad i you know i don't have as many bottles in my cellar as i used to i have like a 500 bottle cellar. it's probably not even probably a third full right now but i did it same way i'd have my my i didn't do it by food because i don't know enough about it but i had like the house wines like you then i had kind of a mid-tier those were for people that were coming over that knew anything remotely about wine and then i had my my stuff like on the list that i shared with you guys but it was always funny when i'd go down there when people are coming over i'd stand in front of the cellar and go well all right, these people coming over don't know anything about wine. They're getting the house wine. And then another time, if it's somebody that knew anything, okay, you know, they know a little bit, I'll pull out that for them. But it was always it wasn't about food, it was more about who was gonna be here drinking the wine. I'm not gonna waste good wine on people
2: that drink Coors Lights for the so, most part. So here's the here's the challenge. That's why like Coors Light. Well, but here's the challenge in our little group, Don. So when our esteemed producer, Michael Molinari, comes to your house, that's when you have to make sure. You have a house wine ready. <laughs> Several bottles.
1: <laughs> and, and why you're is that?
3: You drink a chemist the night before, keep the bottle, open up your crappy stuff and fill up <laughs> the bottle go. with
4: the with There you go. And
3: then you give it to him because you know you're going to go through four
2: <laughs> bottles. Hey, Don, real quickly, what, what what do you make of the NBA We in terms of it, we read? at least you're much closer to it, but you know, guys who obviously have disposable income are getting more into wine in the league. Now, isn't JJ Reddick a big wine dude
3: now? Yeah, I don't, I I think it just kind of caught on and you know, a lot of guys it's, it's for me. And that was one of the reasons why I started drinking it and keep drinking is it puts you to sleep. It's worked for me for years. And I think that's part of it for some guys. Um, But I think it's more like Glenn's been talking about. It's kind of, cachet and debonair to like drink really good red wine versus getting shots of tequila, you know? And so I think the guys have kind of, I don't know, grabbed onto that, that, you know, I drink this bottle and that bottle and put it on. All right, so it's a status thing as opposed to. Uh, okay. I think so. I think, I think a big part of it is that, but I think like, like with me, Ted, I think a lot of guys try it and they really like it and they like the red wine and they like, you know, the effects of the red wine um, and helping them wind down or whatever it is.
1: The effects of the red wine, not like the Burgundy, which would be confused with your first taste of crack, which. We don't
4: <laughs> well, I also, Don, I know for for me, what it was is, in, if I was out to dinner the night before a game, a glass of red wine was perfect. Mm-hmm. The night, I'm not, I'm not getting drunk. I have no effects from it, but it was relaxing and I could enjoy it with my meal. You also know guys, as you know, after a game or before game, they go out and they'll have, you know, a lot of beers or a lot of whiskey. It's like, Ooh, no, not for me. I, I, I always liked it because it was a moderating influence on a, an industry, which there's not a lot of moderating influences on. Now there are, but back, as you know, um, it was a little wilder and crazy back yeah. in the day.
3: Yeah. Well, and I like I said, I didn't start drinking wine until the very end of my playing career and then it became more but yeah it's I just think it's more yeah it's not it's not as much of a party in pro sports as it used to be when you and I played it's more of a let's go to dinner like you're saying let's go to dinner have a great meal have wine not let's go to the strip club and you know drink beers and whiskey all night right
1: I was just going to ask, is, uh, that like a ju- is that like next week's podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's I'm, another podcast that I'd like to be a host on.
2: I was just, I was just Googling to see Robert Parker. Did he ever mention crack in a review of a burgundy? <laughs> 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 I know just I, our I, our I does
4: review the burgundy it was the effects <laughs> of having that first grade burgundy. <laughs> some people might say it's like that first cigarette <laughs> of, Always oh, a Yeah. I'll just go right to crap.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, guys, I don't I really don't want this to end and I would keep going for the next few hours. But I, I want to be respectful of Ted, who what you have to catch a flight here in a little few hours.
2: Yeah, don't worry about this. <sighs> come on, yeah, we have Don Donnie back here and Glenn Parker, two of the great commentators of the Pac-12 network. Mm-hmm.
1: That's true. Well, then it's officially your job to wrap this thing up, Ted. You can say when it's over. By the
3: way, I told Ashley, Ted, I didn't know where you were, so I didn't reach out. But I don't know if I'm supposed to announce it or not. But I recently agreed to a new two-year contract with Pac-12 Network. Haven't signed it yet, but it's agreed to.
1: Breaking news on Outside the Vines.
3: So you're stuck with me for another couple of years, Ted, whether you want to be or not.
2: Good for you. Congratulations. Thank you for your life, Don. (laughs)
1: Thank you for your life. And thank you for ours, Don. Thank you for our lives. Uh, Okay, so, but Ted, before before I hand it over to you to, I mean, either continue this or tell us to go to bed, um, how has it, how has... Paris Ben. How has the French Open been? There's obviously been a ton of headlines. And by the time this thing posts, probably more will have happened. But give give us a good story or two.
2: Well, yeah, I'll try to keep this quick. So the cultural thing has been stunning because I was here in October and in October, we were the bad guys as Americans and France didn't want us around. We were not doing well with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. We had to jump through amazing hoops to come here. And France was open at the time now seven months later we come back here and france is in a mess this place they've been they're just emerging from a lockdown now um restaurants are just been open for 10 days outdoor seating only and it's nine o'clock curfew nine p.m at nine p.m right this time of year in paris it is light it does not get dark till just after 10. so it's been hard um, now the flip side is i had to get a test yesterday morning to be able to fly back to the U.S. And then when I land in the U.S. tomorrow, I have to get tested again before I can work at the Olympic trials. That's the U.S. now saying we don't want you bringing any of that stuff back from France. And the frustration is we're all vaccinated now. But yeah. the vaccinations are not not seeming to have a big impact on that front. So what, what the end of the story for Paris is uh, having been here now twice in, in eight months, I tell you, they need the tourism money. They had zero tourism money in 2020, and they need it. And it's obviously, it comes largely from two places, Americans and Asians. And that's largely the people that have the money and are willing to come here. So they need to get it back. Uh, tennis was, was fascinating because Roger Federer pulled out of a major championship after winning uh, three matches. The third one was a grueling match the other night. But you just, I'll tell you what, if any other player had done that, there would have been a huge uproar. That's how that's how revered Federer is that he could do that and not create a huge tsunami. Um, Serena got beat again, and I thought this was a great chance for her to win. Coco Goff, I called her match this morning. She is real. This young woman is real. She's 17 and remarkably poised. And I don't know if she's going to win this thing. That may be too soon, but she's going to be a player for a long time. And then the last part, which maybe gets to our, our guests here, You know, the the first three days of this thing were completely hijacked by the Naomi Osaka story, which I know and I've heard enough from enough people back home. It really blew up in the U.S. Uh, I, I know a little bit about it from the standpoint that I think this is a problem. It's a Naomi Osaka problem. I think she's fighting and I've watched some and called some matches of hers in the last few years where I thought she's fighting some issues that a lot of people fight. There's nothing wrong with it. But I believe that what she tried to do was kind of or what she did, whether she was trying to or not, was she pulled everybody else in with her. And if you know. Every tennis player that was asked supported Naomi Osaka, not one single player supported her stance, not one, not one player came out and said, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to do press either. And that I thought was very telling. Um, I think most everybody understands it's an obligation and you handle it. And even if you don't like it, you master the art of saying nothing, which Glenn and Don did, I'm sure. And Every elected official we have in America learns how to do that. You learn how to not say things. Every football, I mean, God, the football coaches have PhDs in that, right? So unfortunately, Osaka, I just I, I feel for her because she's uh, she's great. She's great for the sport. And uh, but she's dealing with some things that I hope that I hope now I think she's going to be away for a little while uh, that she can deal with them. And the major thing now for her, the Olympics, she's chosen to represent Japan. It's she's lived in the United States since she was three years old, but her mother was born in or she was born actually in Japan because of her mother. Um, She has to go. I mean, the sponsorship money is massive with her, so she has to go to the Olympics. Uh, And that, to me, will be the next seven weeks away, six weeks away, probably. That's going to be the next kind of crisis point for her.
1: Are the Olympics definitely happening, Ted? Uh,
2: Well, I I, uh, have I was on a call the other night about it. I have another one tomorrow that I'll miss because I'm flying and then another one Wednesday, all these major seminar calls. So the plans are going on. I mean, it's i am um, be honest with you. After 11 Olympics on site, I'm going to Connecticut for this one and I'm okay with it. It's not going to feel like an Olympics, but it's not going to feel like an Olympics there either because everybody's going to be in a bubble and you're not going to be free to do anything. Athletes need to be, I mean, it's, that's just, that's a shame, but that's another that's, that's way outside the minds. <laughs> <laughs> we won't get into that, Ted. Yeah. Um,
4: I do want to ask you, is, you know, we I've been paying attention to the Olympic storyline, the, the timeline, and it seems as if um, there was a probability, it was probability was coming higher and higher that it was going to happen. And in the last couple of weeks, it almost seems like it's reverse course, probabilities that it's trending away from happening. Not saying it's not going to happen, but it seems to be trending away. Are you
2: aware of that going on in the narrative? Yeah. No, No, Glenn, I mean, I've heard the same things you've heard and I've felt some vibes about uh, thing. my stance on this, or at least my, not my stance, my belief over the last six months has been, it's the 2008 housing mortgage crisis. Again, the Olympics are too big to fail, Mm -hmm. too big to fail. There's just way too much. And if they don't happen, everybody, the losses will be massive. Um, And by the way, it's not just financial losses. 10,000 athletes don't get to compete. And I have worked and still will be working with somebody in Indianapolis starting Wednesday who was on the 1980 Olympic team. And she has never forgiven Jimmy Carter for that. And she was on other Olympic teams, so she did have opportunities. She won a medal, but they and I've had two two colleagues who've been through this. They tell me how crushed they are for the one timers, the people who for whom 1980 was the only team that they were going to make and never got a chance to participate. And it's just a scar that is 40 years later has never healed. So when this concept comes up in the Japanese, people don't want the Olympics. I, I got to be honest with you, they don't get a vote. <laughs> they don't get a vote. Um, you know, the politicians and the business people and the health of Japan, the health professionals in Japan are the ones that are going to have a vote. And I think the only way it doesn't happen is if they just stand up and say, we're shutting the borders. We're just shutting the borders. Can't fly in. Uh, and that's going to have to happen pretty quickly because you're going to start having the front lines of people from other countries are going to be going to Japan in the next probably 14 days, the very first front lines. So uh, I'm hoping it happens for the athletes sake, because they're all conditioned for the bubble and they'll go and they'll bubble for a week or 10 days, however long, and they'll be OK with it. It's not fun, but that's what they they've trained five. This is five years now. It's five years, and for the athletes that are older, for whom you know that one more year of time, this, these trials that are starting right now in the U.S. are big because you have some older athletes that this this extra year now could hurt them a lot, right? Because now a younger athlete's a year older and a year more ready to take that spot, and three years from now they're not going to have enough time to rebound and recover for 2024. So as all kinds of of complications. But ultimately, I know we all talk about the money and I'll be honest, having been blessed to be at 11 of them, it's to me, it's about the athletes. If the athletes want to go and compete and are willing to put up with all the bubble stuff, then I'm all for it.
1: Well said, Ted, I I appreciate that. And I do think you have a good idea for way outside the vines. That's like our, our 2.0 version of this podcast. <laughs> I'm bored um Okay, so just a couple quick things before we uh say goodbye, because I again, I just don't ever really want this thing to end. Uh, Ted, thank you for staying up until two o'clock in the morning and, and going straight to the airport. I hope you. Hey, how is better. your
2: bottle still not empty yes. by now? Yeah, chug the that tea.
1: thing. In
2: the Petit Dejeuner de Paris, breakfast in Paris, <laughs> Margot.
1: <laughs> uh, I got to say thank you to Rasa Vineyards in Walla Walla, Washington. And thank you, Adam Gordon, our producer, who who picked this yep. fabulous wine for us. By the way, the backstory I was reading it was about is super interesting. Yeah, Adam's the best. But this for this winery, two winemakers left their like safe, high-tech jobs to to start a winery in 2006. And I just, anyone who's willing to, to do that. I have a ton of respect for and this wine is phenomenal. So thank you for that. Glenn, thank you for making me know more about wine than I ever dreamed yeah. that I would know. Every sure. time I listen to you, I learn something new. And Don, you, you know how I feel about you, my man. I, I'm ready for you to take over my spot on this podcast if you want. You earned it tonight.
3: Well, <laughs> I feel like I'm pretty good in the middle. Like I don't know as much about Glenn. Um You're like I'm the not-
1: Goldilocks. You're just
3: I don't host either, but I drink. <laughs> a lot of red
2: wine. So I feel like I'm qualified for this. Ash. Sure. Well, you, know, you know how we'll discourage Don from doing this next week? We tell him, hey, Sauvignon Blanc on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> right,
3: yeah. I'll be at basketball practice. A nice Don, we're
4: going to Don, I, I, we're gonna make this a, a thing. Every time you come to Tucson, anytime we cross paths, mm. we're going to eat, and we're going to order something out of your comfort zone, and then we're going to order a cap just so you can start expanding and understanding that there's great wines across the board out there. Really are.
2: That's right. Deal.
1: This is a beautiful Deal. thing that was just born. Cause I know Don's going to be in Tucson quite a bit over the next two years, especially given the news that we heard tonight. So congrats right. again, yeah. Don. Uh, appreciate you guys. And you know who we've got coming up, Ted?
2: Natalie Coglin. right?
1: Natalie Coughlin. Right. Not that any Speaking podcast is ever going to top Don McLean, but Natalie Coghlan may, may uh, May yeah. give Donna a run for his money.
2: That's going to be our next guest, Natalie. Of course, the Olympic champion, many, many medals. But it's a nice gesture. A woman in the wine business. She yes. and uh, and a partner of hers own a winery called Gaudarian, And that's a nice thing to have some women that are making some strides in the wine business.
4: Well, and Just to put that out there before we go so I can get ahead of the game. Well, women winemakers have been in the game for a long time. They just haven't been owners. Right. Women have a much better sense of smell, and their palates are generally better than men. Their memories are incredible. Um, I, I, I actually, I don't know if you're this way, and I'm sure Ted, you know something like this because if you're a wife, but uh, my wife can remember a certain smell and go, "Oh, you were wearing this on that date when this happened."
1: <laughs> I agree with that, Glenn, and I will say, as as someone who has carried two children, your sense of smell when you are pregnant, like that, is actually you should do the essence tasting. If you're a woman when you're pregnant, because unfortunately your your sense of smell is like through the roof. I would say it's not a necessarily a good thing. But yeah, I appreciate that, Glenn. I uh, yeah, I think women have better taste and smell altogether.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so Ted, go catch your flight. Don, appreciate you, buddy.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. This
0: was fun. Great, Great to you. be with you. Congrats, Donnie Mac. Thank you, you Matt. We'll, we'll do it again. again. Cheers, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week on Outside the Vines. Remember to check out our YouTube channel to get more out of your experience with the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back on our next episode soon. This has been a presentation of Outside the Vines. For the love of wine and the thirst for sports.